Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. Robert Gushala, he was the inmate that I originally was going to use. Yes. As, um, was, did he, I don't recall him ever claiming that Abramowski coerced him to say anything. No, no, he's saying um, that Harold did. That Harold coerced Oshala. Yeah. Uh, well, he may have said that. I, I can't dispute that. Right. right. Um, I can't dispute that. Uh, John, they'll say a lot of times they say a lot of things when they get up on the stand and they don't want to testify. Right. And they're, they're savvy enough to understand that when they say certain things, that that pretty much destroys their credibility as a witness. And. Uh, so it would not surprise me if, in fact, he said that, and, and that's when I said, okay, that we can't use him. So you told Jeff his hair was in Dick's hand. I did not. You didn't? No, ma'am, did not. That report had not come back yet. We knew that the fingernail DNA was, was related to Abramowski. I did not uh, tell him that... His hair was in Dick's hand. I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. So the very same weekend that 78-year-old Dick Courtney Crandall is found beaten to death in his Melbourne trailer, his girlfriend, Judy Foley, her 33-year-old son, Bruce, and Judy's sister, Rita Acreage, leave the area. Now, they say that when they left town, Dick was still alive as far as they knew. They also say it took them three days to get to where they were going, to where police found them in their home state of Alabama. Keep in mind, a road trip from Melbourne, Florida to Bessemer, Alabama normally takes about 10 hours. Their reasons for taking the trip setting off in the middle of the night with no money, and why it took them three days, were convoluted and confusing. It was tiring trying to make sense of it all, and I'm not sure I ever did. But like I said near the end of the last episode, they may have contradicted each other on when they left and why, but they all agreed on one thing. When asked by Brevard County Sheriff's Homicide Agents Gary Harrell and Carlos Reyes who might have wanted to hurt Dick, they all gave the same exact answer and said it in the exact same way even. Jeff Abramowski. Except they all struggled with Jeff's last name. Jeff, uh, Abarowski or something like that. Have a listen. Okay, there's a guy, what's his name? Jeff Abarowski. Have y'all talked to him? You know what I'm talking about? Jeff, Jeffrey Abarowski. I might as well be straight with you. He goes with this guy, Jeff Abarinsky, to the doctors to get Oxycontin. Jeff who? Abarinsky. I can't say that. What's Jeff's last name? It's it's a... A-B-R-A... 
M O S K Y. I don't know how to pronounce it. A V R A. I'm just guessing. A V R A M O S K W S K Y. The trio are eager to tell agents about Jeff's drug involvement with Dick. They say that Dick would drive Jeff around to pill mill doctors and pharmacies for Oxycontin. And in turn, he would give Jeff some of the drugs as payment. Bruce Foley was also eager to share some of Jeff's previous run-ins with the law, mainly a DUI and another time when police were called out to Jeff's house when his wife wanted him to leave. Now, was this why Jeff suddenly became the focus of the investigation? It really remains unclear. Maybe it was the DNA that was under Dick's fingernail. Still, it seems odd because of the other DNA, the blood and the hair that was found at the crime scene as well. That seemed to be explained away or ignored. Now, before we go on ahead, I have a few updates. Remember, a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I had been trying to reach out to Gary Harrell, the retired sheriff's homicide agent. I wanted to ask him about what he said on the witness stand and the allegations made against him by two inmates who claim he fed them information about the case in order for them to testify against Jeff Abramowski. Also, I just really wanted to ask him, why did you focus on Jeff? Why do you think you have the right guy? I tried texting, calling, Facebook, and email. I even emailed his wife. Well, after I sent a letter to his home, Gary answered my text, and we made plans to meet and talk over lunch. He said in his text, quote, What's going on? Are you looking to cast doubt on these cases? I'm not interested in any way in casting doubt in these cases. I'm sure of their guilt. Closed quote. But unfortunately, he canceled the morning of our planned lunch, and we haven't been able to meet since. If I do get a chance to chat with him, I'll be sure to post an update right away. You also may be wondering why the only audio I have been using from Bruce Foley, Judy Foley, and Rita Akeridge is from their interviews with police or their trial testimony. Well, Judy Foley passed away in Leeds, Alabama in June 2008. I'm still trying to find out how. And I just learned, after knocking on doors, talking to neighbors, and with help from my private eye buddy, that Rita Akeridge killed herself on August 22, 2017 in her apartment on Orange Avenue in Melbourne. She apparently took more than 30 tramadol. She was found by her longtime boyfriend, William Staples, who saw her body on the floor of the living room through the window. He told police that he had seen her the previous day. When she was found, according to the police report, full rigor mortis had already set in. I've also tried to reach out to her family in Alabama, but so far no luck. Bruce Foley is the only one of the trio still alive. He's in Alabama, where he's a registered sex offender, serving lifetime probation for sending lewd photos to an underage girl. I've reached out to him, and to be honest, I'll be shocked if I hear back. It would uh, really be interesting if I did. Now back to our story. Dick was killed sometime between Friday, May 17th and Monday, May 20th, 2002. Though it is likely he was killed closer to Monday because there was little to no sign of decomposition on his body. But police and the prosecutor really seem to suggest he was killed Saturday because that's the day two witnesses put Jeff at the trailer park where Dick lived a day when Jeff insists he wasn't there. Now, are they saying the murder took place on Saturday only because eyewitnesses say that Jeff was there? I don't know. 
And as you heard, Jeff's name came up right away when police trekked up to Alabama to find Judy, Bruce, and Rita. And so only one day after interviewing the trio in Alabama, Gary Harrell is already back in Melbourne, Florida, where he picks Jeff up on Wednesday, May 22nd, and brings him to the station for questioning. Jeff answers all questions posed by Gary Harrell and Carlos Reyes, seems good-natured on the videotape, and agrees to let them take DNA swabs from his cheek. He also provides them with hair. You can see the full video right now at MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. But that's not the only thing that happened Wednesday. That same day, Judy Foley and her sister Rita Akeridge made the three-day journey back to Melbourne in the normal time it takes, about 10 hours or so. And the next day, Thursday, May 23rd, Judy and Rita were both arrested for twice breaking into Dick's trailer and taking his things. First thing they took, according to Sergeant Bruce Barnett of the Sheriff's Office, was Dick's Oldsmobile Toronado, which they then drove to Rita's apartment in Indian Harbor Beach and tried hiding it. They returned to the trailer park that same day, and this time were observed by Sheriff's deputies trying to break into the trailer. Now, in their defense, Judy did go to a neighbor's trailer and asked them to call police because the locks to Dick's trailer had been changed. But she broke the window and gained access before deputies arrived. Sergeant Barnett was quoted in the newspaper saying just because the man was dead, they thought they could come and take property. That's not fair to the family of the decedent. The article says they were then questioned by Gary Harrell. They later agreed to a plea deal with the state for lesser charges, pleading no contest to disorderly conduct, a second-degree misdemeanor. Adjudication was withheld, meaning there was no penalty attached except to pay the court costs. Now, here's an interesting and sometimes intense exchange between Judy Foley and Jeff's attorney, Laura Seamers, during his 2006 trial about the break-in and Judy's claim to Dick's belongings. Remember, one of the first things she tells police in Alabama is that Dick left everything to her because he loved her. It's a little long, but oh, so captivating. And when Judy Foley mentions Judy, she's not talking about herself, but about Dick's daughter, Judy Watts. Did you say the trial made you sick? The whole thing, yes, ma'am. Because I lost a good man. I lost everything in my life. But actually, you gained some money, didn't you? I didn't gain anything. You didn't? I, no, I didn't. Did I, you Did you inherit money from Dick? I did not. I got $12,000, and I ended up paying for a trailer that was mine that his family walked into. No, ma'am, I didn't get no money. You didn't get $12,000 from him? I got it, but it went to lawyers, and it went to Judy and, and her family to fix the trailer up that the trailer was mine. Okay. So you want to say that I got 12000 No, ma'am. I, I lost my trailer. I lost everything, and it wasn't right. No, they wouldn't even let me in my house, man. That was my home with Dick. They took everything out of my home, and they sold everything the next day, and my man was not even in his grave that day. You who, who took everything out? His daughter. Judy? Yeah. I've got pictures of where they sold everything. They're all my pictures away and everything, and anything I had of Dick's. I lost everything. I not only lost Dick, but I lost everything with Dick. Didn't you have your name on some of the trailers or all of the trailers that he owned? Yes, ma'am. I didn't get nothing. If you think I got anything, I no, have to I'm asking, Ma'am, I'm not asking if you received cash. No, I didn't. Get but did you inherit the trailers from him? Yes, after I had to buy them off. Okay. 
which was supposed to be mine to begin with and which they weren't even supposed to be in the trailer, ma'am. That was my trailer and Dick's trailer. Nobody was supposed to go in that trailer. They took everything I own, my pictures, my school pictures, and they just threw it out. So you want to ask if I've been hurt? Yes, ma'am, I've no, been hurt. I didn't ask that. You know, I've been hurt. And it ain't right, man, it ain't right. Anybody that please, I'm sorry, ma'am. Please take a moment to compose yourself. Just want... Okay, if you could just answer the questions. Okay, so when you came back from Alabama after that weekend, like you're saying, all your stuff was out of the trailer? Oh, no. The, okay. the detectives told me I could come on a Wednesday when the yellow line was down. Okay. Well, when I got there that Wednesday, Judy and all them were out there selling everything. My, my and Dick's jacuzzi that we just bought everything. Maybe they didn't know it. Maybe they didn't like me because, you know, he was married, but he loved his wife in his own way and he loved me. It wasn't like a, a bad thing, you know, it was a good thing. But I lost everything. I lost my school pictures, uh, my okay. children's when, pictures. When you came back from Alabama, did, didn't you and Rita break into the trailer then? Hey, it was mine. I didn't break in. I walked into that trailer. You did? And you, I went, you had a key? Huh? Did you have no, a key? No, they changed the lock. But okay. I went into my trailer. I broke the window. Cause okay, so you it. broke the window. Yeah. Isn't it was my trailer. trailer. It okay. was my trailer. Okay, but you broke the window to get in. Certainly. And didn't you need to then steal Dick's car? That was my car that Dick gave me to for Christmas, ma'am. Were you arrested? I didn't, I didn't. Yes, I was arrested, and the judge said it was foolish, and he, he got it down to disturbing right, the peace, ma'am. You can answer that question. Just a minute. Mr. Parker. Ms. Seamers, if you want to ask a question, wait for the answer. If there's an objection, Mr. Parker, state objection. Yes, ma'am, I got arrested, but it was on fire. So you and Rita were arrested for stealing Dick's car after he was dead, right? The, I, the car wasn't in your name, right? I know, but it was my car. He gave it to me as a gift. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. We know that Jeff was found guilty of murdering Dick and is serving a life sentence in prison. But I only told you briefly that it was his second trial. I want to go back a bit and talk about his first trial. Because really, there are some extraordinary things that we learn during the first trial that were kind of dropped or glossed over later on. Now, during his first trial, Jeff was represented by a public defender, Steve Weisoker. And the prosecutor was Rob Parker, who also prosecuted the second trial. Now, we don't have any audio from the first trial and only a partial transcript. Still, there are some incredible moments. First is the fact that neither side decided to call Judy Foley, Bruce Foley, or Rita Akeridge. I asked Rob Parker about that. My, my first strategy was that there was a, a jailhouse confession you're aware of. Yes. I'm sure. Uh, I thought with the evidence that I had, I would go with the with that confession and not call them because they were what I considered not the, the best witnesses on the stand. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, we got into it. The, the witness I had balked. Uh, in retrospect, I'm glad he did because I'm not a fan of jailhouse snitches. I rarely put them on. Remember, Jeff allegedly made a jailhouse confession to Robert O'Hala, 
who refused to testify and who told me that he was coerced by Gary Harrell and told what to say. That was one of the things I'd hoped to ask Gary directly about. When Robert O'Hala refused to testify, the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial because the prosecutor had already told the jury that the jailhouse snitch was coming. It was during his second trial that Jeff was convicted. Now back to the first trial. This has the testimony of Valeria David. Remember, she was Dick's neighbor who found his body and also told police she saw Jeff at the trailer that Saturday. Chris Vasquez, an acquaintance of Jeff, who told police that he dropped Jeff off at the trailer park Saturday. And the state's DNA expert, Gary Daniels, who said he could not exclude Jeff from the very small amount of DNA found on one of Dick's fingernails. All three testified in Jeff's second trial as well. The big difference between the trials, other than the testimony of Judy, Rita, and Bruce in the second trial, is that in Jeff's first trial, the state produced and played two long interviews Jeff did with sheriff's agents, the one from May 22nd and the one from August 15th. Again, you can watch these right now on MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Now, what's interesting is that when I first watched the May 15th interview, Jeff appears to me to be pretty high. And I know that I'm not an expert, but I also know that I'm not the only one who thought so, because during the first trial, Prosecutor Rob Parker asks Agent Gary Harrell about his past as a narcotics officer, and whether he is able to recognize when someone is under the influence. I have no audio from that first trial, so I'll just read one short section for you of Parker questioning Harrell. Was there anything that he did or said in your presence initially that indicated that he was under the influence at all? The reply, no, sir. And again, like I just said, I know I'm not the only one because I spoke with a juror from that case. Now, I promised him I would not use his name, but I also have a sworn affidavit from him that I will mention again soon. But I took notes when we spoke, and here's what he told me. Quote, I remember watching this very long interview with Jeff. Then the prosecutor asked Gary Harrell about his narcotics expertise, and then asked him if Jeff seemed sober to him. And he said 100% sober as a church mouse. That really stuck in my craw because he was obviously wasted. End quote. So I found out it's not illegal, but frowned upon to interview someone who, you know, is wasted. But the agent with narcotics expertise says Jeff was not wasted or high or intoxicated. Anyway, it was something else that Gary Harrell said on the stand that jumped off the page at me. Remember, when Dick's body was found on the floor of his trailer, he had a clump of Judy Foley's hair in his hand. And her son Bruce Foley's blood was in the master bathroom sink trap. But, and here's the kicker, the police only learned it was Bruce Foley's blood after Jeff was arrested. Let me repeat that. They arrested Jeff before the results came in showing the blood in Dick's master bathroom belonged to Bruce Foley, the guy who had just given him a black eye and attacked him with a golf club and who allegedly stole drugs from him. I can't help but wonder if the police would have been so quick to clear the Foley's and arrest Jeff if they'd had all the DNA results back. When they arrested Jeff, the only DNA report they had was regarding Judy Foley's hair in Dick's hand and the touch DNA under Dick's fingernail, not the blood report. That would come later. Remember the clip I played of Harold on the stand at the beginning of this episode? That was from the second trial where he says on the stand the DNA report had not come back yet. Now he was referring to Judy Foley's hair that was found in Dick's hand. 
Well, we know the report had come back. And here's what Detective Harrell said at the first trial when asked if he had the report on August 15th while questioning Jeff. Quote, I did. The reply, all right, so you knew that the hairs in the hand were not, in fact, Jeff's. Correct. You get that? In the first trial, the one declared a mistrial, Detective Gary Harrell says on the stand that yes, he had the DNA report that showed the hair in Dick's hand did not belong to Jeff when he questioned Jeff. In the second trial, Gary Harrell says on the stand that no, he did not have the report at that time. Wow. Again, just wow. That's another thing that I wanted to ask Detective Harrell about, if he will agree to meet with me. So moving forward, a mistrial was declared when Ohala recanted his testimony. Though according to Jeff, the mistrial was imposed without either him or his attorney accepting it. If that's true, it really is a shame because, according to the juror who signed that affidavit, the consensus was that Jeff was going to receive a not guilty verdict. We'll never know. But here's what the juror says in his sworn affidavit. Quote, On Thursday, December 15, 2005, after Judge Rainwater informed the jury that she had declared a mistrial, Assistant State Attorney John Robert Parker came into the jury room and spoke to the jury. Close quote. Now, after learning how the jury was leaning, open quote again, Parker asked for and received feedback as to what the jury thought were the weaknesses in the state's case. Of course, this is not allowed. Ever. Now, I've known Rob Parker for a long time and covered many of his cases. He always seemed extremely professional, accessible, and interested in justice. So I asked him if this was true. After the mistrial, somebody said that um, you and Judge Rainwater went back to the jury room and, and, and you polled the, uh, the actual jurors. Uh, is that true? Is that allowed? Is that No, you know? no. That, first of all, that's not true. Uh, I'm not allowed to approach any juror at all, except after the trial and with their permission. They get to approach me. They're given a strict instruction that they don't have to talk to anybody. If they choose to, they can go talk with them, but, you know, no, they can't just, they can't do that. So I've, I've never done that. I pressed him a little further and told him about the affidavit. Well, I would like to see that. I can tell you right now, John, I have no recollection of that. My gut feeling is I would never do that in a million years. But I tell you what, you know, there's a saying, uh, a lot of reporters use it. Is it possible? Uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I, yeah. But I, stuff like that would stick out in my mind. So I, just trying to be straight with you. Right. And I, uh, no, I appreciate it. If she has the affidavit, I'd love to see it. So. so a mistrial is declared and no one was closer to learning the truth. And then once more, fate stepped in and wreaked havoc with Jeff Abramowski. Though at the time, it seemed like good luck had finally come his way. Because, truth be told, Jeff was very unhappy with how he was being represented by public defender Steve Wysoker. In fact, here he is telling me about his relationship with Wysoker when I interviewed him several years ago. Now, Steve Wysoker, you know him? Yeah. Steve refused to help me. He did not do nothing. He would not let me see my discovery for two years. He would not, he would not do anything. I had a Nelson hearing, right? To try to get rid of Steve to get another attorney. 
I got another attorney eventually. Once I got that attorney, that public defender, when I called, he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, that's Steve's baby. Steve's got that. Steve went to early resolution, but the only person he kept on the caseload was me. Now, as fate would have it, Steve's wife, Laura Seamers, was a private attorney who sat in on the first trial when she could, and she took an interest in the case. Private attorneys have more resources available to them, and, well, I'll just let her tell it. On um, June 9th, 2006, I drove up to the Brevard County Jail where Jeff Abramowski was being held without bond for four years, and I convinced him to let me take over his case. Um, he was, Jeff was being represented by my husband, who uh, is a public defender, and it was because of that I had seen the evidence, some of the evidence, including um, the interrogation of Mr. Abramowski by the police. Okay, now Laura. Laura comes on the scene. Laura comes on the scene. She meets me at the county jail. She says to me, she says, I am the best attorney you've ever seen. I can beat John Parker. I believe in you. The DNA doesn't match you. The next day, I agreed to, to, to do this with her. The next day, we go in front of Rainwater. Tanya Rainwater says, you want her as your attorney? I said, yes. Armed with a new sense of hope and a new private attorney, Jeff Abramowski was sure he was going to win. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. I believed Jeff was innocent. I knew that he was not happy with uh, my husband's representation of him. And so I knew what to say. I knew exactly what to say. I knew that he wanted somebody who believed in him. I told him that I believed he was innocent and I knew that I could win the case and I convinced him to let me take over the case 10 days before it was set for trial. Laura, over the years, kept telling me, Jeff, when the truth comes out, the truth will set you free. And I kept asking her, I said, Laura, I said, what do you mean the truth will set me free? That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.